Hello and welcome back to Voicecraft. This is part two with Anderson Todd, a neo-Jungian alchemist, psychotherapist, cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto. It's recorded all in one go. It does stand alone, but there's also a nice flow between them. So if you are here for the first time, I recommend just hitting one episode back and beginning. Welcome to a world of Jung and alchemy. What Jung thought about psychedelics, what we think about that now. What does choosing evolution look like in this time? What could that even mean? How can we relate to that? What will it be? Can we get a sense of our time before us? It came up that you mentioned Jung's attitude towards psychedelics was... Overly, I think, restrictive. I think he he wrote some famous letters. I've actually released some videos on this channel, a video on this channel that's been watched over a hundred thousand times regarding what Jung said about psychedelics. It was something that mm-hmm. caught on, and people are very interested in it. And mm-hmm. uh, you read those comments, and some people resonate with the wisdom of the words, uh, and other people are like Jung, really missing missing the point here. And of course, he was writing before there had been not even the psychedelic renaissance, even the actual the sixties themselves, or at least we couldn't see them in hindsight. Things were still in development. He talks about mescaline and what have you. And while his view, I think, is fairly too restrictive, and also from the anthropological sense, as you mentioned. There is a sense that one of the key issues he speaks to is the importance of, well, if you're going to sort of touch the sphere where the paint is made, as he terms it, if you're going to take this rocket ship to some of this material, then there's a certain amount of responsibility in terms of uh, you better be prepared to have to really integrate this in a way that's not going to be destructive of you fundamentally. And right. as we've mentioned, this, this integration is something that, yes, of course, takes place within and we can do inner work and inner practice, but this also takes place in relationship and in relationship to context. And part of the issue was with the 60s is that, well, yeah, we can say certain things about Timothy Leary and then and sort of an inappropriate kind of crackdown that's motivated by whether economic reasons, like stupid political reasons, like a whole bunch of stuff. There's still a sense in which we were, as a culture, quite cut off from an integration with mm. those traditions of our history, which could be those contexts which could help ground the kind of appropriate integration of this material and so Mm -hmm. sure um, having a kind of spiritual traditionalist framework right the mm -hmm. sort of ritual and you know often maybe shamanistic but sort of the the initiation framework and cultural containment that comes with traditional practice yes yes and I'd, i'd like to sort of presence the frame of of that as in this house party you mentioned there's a certain like that the moment we find ourselves in is one that I think opens itself to a lot of, there's a clearing, there's a lot of available energy, there's this in, mm-hmm. important need to, to integrate that which has been broken apart. And there's a kind of wild westness to mm-hmm. some structures that, that may, come, may form. Now we have loads of wisdom traditions. To Although the less so than the 60s in a way, right? Well, I mean, in some ways, as you alluded to, there was more conventional structure, but as regards this stuff, the 60s had an extremely Wild West kind of approach, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's 
that and that was the the kind of critique of the the decontextualization and the disembeddedness of psychedelics in that period right not respecting i mean you know that a notion of set and setting but like there already was set and setting that was back there it's just like you have to ask the you know the mouse attack or something what they were doing with the mushrooms <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um yeah but i agree with you there's a lot of available energy and it's it's extremely open yeah yes yeah i hear you on that so an interesting question i have for you is and and maybe it it might be worthwhile to to speak to alchemy a little bit and the kind of Mm. mystery that alchemy is shrouded in and of course jung took a great interest in alchemy i myself Mm -hmm. have found such incredibly helpful and um, instrumental and continually ripe possibilities but found in the phrase um, solve et coagula which of course Mm -hmm. maps so well onto how we could think from a cognitive science perspective so there's the alchemy piece and then there's the shroud of mystery of that i'm interested in the relationship between jung and mystery societies and i'm also Mm -hmm. interested in that frame being something that can be helpfully brought into this and ongoing conversations which can help us understand how to appropriately relate to mystery now right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i I think that actually does really usefully tie together and to the psychedelics too i mean you know when we talk about their having you know having an appropriate cultural context in which to sort of interpret one's you know spiritual and initiatory and, and psychedelic experiences it's true that having something to do that is highly effective, right? Having something that allows you to construe what's happening to you and a way of making use of it and so on and so forth, right? But the tendency very often for people that make that critique, I think, is to then lapse into a kind of, you know, sort of um, retro shamanism, right? It's like what we have to do is, is go back to the original indigenous model. Now, that's not to say that the original indigenous model isn't a good one, right? It might be highly effective, but like at some point somebody made that up, right? (laughs) Like it's an experimental process that somebody made up, some humans made up, or, you know, I guess if you have a, if you have a different sort of metaphysical frame, maybe it was delivered to them by, by being or beings. But the point is like, at some point they didn't have it, you know, at some point some humans got into Mexico and they ate mushrooms for the first time. And when they did, they started figuring out what the hell they were going to do with what was hitting them, right? Mm -hmm. There was a real-time experimental Mm -hmm. interpretation. That means that we shouldn't ignore the practical wisdoms of the humans that have come before us. They weren't stupid, right? They just didn't know some things that we know in the way that we don't know some things that they knew, right? We have a different base of knowledge, but the fact is they weren't dumb. Humans are smart. They do Mm -hmm. smart things, and they do effective things, which is one of the reasons why I'm so... I really like to thump the pulpit about magic it, because it cheeses me off when people treat magic like it's a bunch of superstitious bunkum and they don't understand that what it is is a highly honed, sophisticated set of psychotechnologies that have been developed around the globe for millennia in order to do certain things and we ignore it at our peril. But anyway, okay, so these the indigenous practices around this stuff were tinkered with they were experimented with they were modeled like that's how we develop things correspondingly we can draw useful insights from that but that doesn't necessarily mean that we stop there now the western 
ethos a lot of the time, unfortunately, around these things is what I like to call a fast food atom bomb ethos, right? So in the Andes, they chew coca leaves by the quid or have tea and it invigorates them and they combat their altitude sickness and whatever, right? And that's good. But no, we concentrate it down to a white powder and then further turn it into smokable rocks. Like we love reducing things to their poisonous essence and then consuming them, right? Fast food is the same gig. It's like we took food, which is good for you, and concentrated into a thing that tastes better than food and is more nutritious than food and is vastly deadlier than food, And right? We saw the bliss point, as they call it, in, in the food industry. So we love doing that kind of stuff. That's kind of, that's the core of the, of the um, instrumental technological impulse in sort of the Western ethos. And that run out of control within the framework of initiation and spiritual advancement is going to be a problem. That's kind of sometimes how it gets. And you get hints of that in sort of the Silicon Valley microdosing culture, which is, you know, the joke. And, and it's, it's not a fair caricature in some ways, but like in the 60s, it was turn on, tune in, drop out, right? Leave society. And now it's like take small doses of LXD to increase your productivity coding for Microsoft or whatever, you know, so there are lessons to be pulled from the indigenous context is what I'm getting at, but that doesn't mean that innovation stops there. It means that we respect those models and then we innovate and we combine them, which is what humans do and what we have always done. And that's especially so when you consider that like, it's all well and good to go and consult indigenous models for, you know, ayahuasca or for psilocybin mushrooms, right? But what about LSD? It doesn't exist in nature. Does that mean we can't have a relationship with it? Does it mean that it's not a useful tool? Do we just use the same tools as we would use for a natural component? Like the answer is we have to make it up and we have to make it up based on what we already know and some good inferences in an experimental mindset, right? We have to kind of experiment and make it up. And the reason that I bring this up within the alchemical framework is that one of the things that I love most about alchemy as a kind of counterculture expression of spirituality within the whole period in which it's operating, right? It's always, it's never the dominant. Alchemy is always hermetic. It's always sidelined. It's always Gnostic. It's always the weirdo spirituality, but it's also deeply, deeply experimental, intrinsically, inherently. And it's not that you, you don't discover the alchemist secret recipe and then follow all the steps. That's amateur cooking is following the recipe. Cooking is about learning what the components of the operations are. You want to learn how to cook in the kitchen. You learn how the, the functions of ingredients work. You learn how, what it means to be sour and what salt is good for, and right? And you learn, you learn how to saute and you learn how to braise and you learn how to, right? You learn operations and you learn things and then you just get in there. And sometimes you turn out a meal and it's frankly, it's dog shit because you've overstepped yourself and put in too much tarragon or something. But like it's intrinsically experimental and transformational in the way that cooking is. Alchemy is like that, except what you're cooking is being. And when I say, when I say that alchemy and cooking, I mean, I really mean that. You know, a lot of people have taken up baking in the pandemic. And I thought that was really interesting. Symbolically interesting as a, as a neo-Jungian, but also just like really interesting. When I took up baking... 15, 17 years ago, what really threw me was how alchemical baking really was. You take a bunch of garbage that basically isn't food and stir it together in a bowl 
And then mysteriously, there are magical invisible things in there that produce gas or something. I don't know. You have to punch it a few times when it gets too big. And then eventually you put it in under some heat and it comes out as perfect golden light spongy things that resemble neither flour nor water. Like there's something deeply magical when you get good at baking, when you can produce like pastries and stuff, that's just pure sorcery, right? Alchemy, similar transformational kind of um, approach to things. And you can see it because the alchemical texts are difficult to translate in part because they're records of experiments written in an idiosyncratic symbolic language. Yes, they're borrowing from the previous masters, but basically what they do is they get a few core precepts, right? They get solve et coagula. And these things are heuristics, they're guidelines. They're just like try to remember, right? You get the axiom of Maria Prophetisa, right? The one begets the two, the two begets the three, which begets the fourth that is the one. And it's like, you could sit all day and contemplate what that means. You know, you get some of the, you know, you get salt, you get sulfur, you get mercury, you get the four elements, you get the various sort of astrological things. Like there's a lot of stuff you can absorb in operations. But at the end of the day, what you're doing is experimental and idiosyncratic. You start out and, you know, if the goal is to turn the prima materia, the base matter, into philosophical gold, it's like, well, question one, what's the base matter? Well, what's most base? And then people find all kinds of things, you know, shit, dirt, dead bodies, lead, you know, what's most base? Like, and that's a fundamentally, it's like starting from this weird thing. It's like having a formula, but not knowing what any of the components in it mean, right? So it's not imitative. It's not imitative in the ritual sense that absorbing a standard catechism or something is imitative. You go to church, you learn it, wrote, wrote. I'm not Catholic, but my mom's Catholic. So I went to Catholic church as a kid and I consider Catholicism quite beautiful. I wish, I wish they'd stuck with the Latin, but you know, you learn the routine. You learn when you stand up, you learn when you sit down, you learn when you shake hands, you learn when to open the book, you learn when you go up and eat the bread, like they're right. And that's a certain kind of spiritual ritual thing. Mm. But alchemy isn't that there are some rituals in it, maybe, but then after that, it's deeply fundamentally experimental. And if you believe Jung's account, the core of alchemy, at least in this particular form, because for sure there were people that were just doing chemistry experiments and they produced lots of the dyes and glass blowing techniques, like they had important contributions to science and technology. And there were the people who really just thought that they were actually going to get for real gold out of it. And they also did all kinds of work and got good funding from the King of Prague. And right. So there's always people at various levels of construal, but for the people who are the like deep imagistic spiritual alchemists, there's always this microcosm macrocosm aspect, which is that in some way altering myself alters the world in the way that the world alters myself. And you can treat that, you know, you can step back and scoff at it from a modern perspective and treat it as though that's like, I don't know, some kind of dumb superstition or like, you know, weird, unverifiable, or you can come in and say, well, what would that mean charitably? And if you start doing that, and I've had good luck using cognitive science to do it. I try to sort of inhabit, what would that mean? If you do that, it's just obviously trivially true. Like, of course we project ourselves into the environment. People project all the time. We take it as a matter of course. We have to. I often say to my students, for instance, right? I'm fascinated by people's responses to movies. So we we go through a moral panic every few years around violence in movies. Are kids seeing too much violence? I don't know why. I grew up on the most violent 
gory, sex-filled, swearing, imaginably filled films. I don't seem to have, well, I mean, I'm crazy. <laughs> everybody's crazy. But actually, maybe I've just explained a lot. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, but what I mean is I don't think it's damaged me in yeah. a way. And I sort of, I, I'm puzzled when people suggest that, right? Even though it might be sensitive, right? There's some kids who are going to be really sensitive to it. You don't want to freak kids out. But anyway, so when people get into fiction, Okay, when you're watching a movie and you're following along and you're invested, you know it's not real. But who is it? Who's the you that knows that it isn't real? I mean, at one level, you know it's not real. But on another level, you clearly don't. Because if you did, you wouldn't experience emotional reactions to what was happening. Right? That's just, it's just trivially, obviously true. It's one of the best arguments for the psychodynamic hypothesis that I can think of. And... It's like, yeah, on one level, if I turn to you in the middle of the movie and I say, are werewolves real? You will say, no, werewolves are not real. Although, who knows, really. But werewolves are not real. Aliens are not mm -hmm. real, right? Marvel superheroes are not real. And yet, you, are, you will experience highs and lows of emotional connection. And notably, the predictability of that stuff doesn't matter either, right? Stories can be highly predictable. A good, well-constructed rom-com always has the same structure. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. And the thing that the beauty of that structure is it works every time if you do it right. Mm -hmm. Like we, mm -hmm. we just like, we just like that. Mm -hmm. We like that structure. Mm -hmm. So your investment in a story, and some people will say things like, well, movies today are so realistic, your brain can't tell the difference. And that's horseshit. It's not true. Because if I go to the park and I watch Shakespeare in the park, right? Where the, here in Toronto, we have a large park, high park um, at the edge of the city. Well, not really the edge. Anyway, we have this big park and there's sort of a natural amphitheater and they stage Shakespeare in the summer. So you can go and sit on the limestone and watch them put on these Shakespeare productions. I can get emotionally invested in Shakespeare in the park and nobody can tell me that that's because my brain is mistaking what's happening on stage for reality in that sense. It's not because it's so realistic, I can't tell the difference. This looks preposterous. It's obviously not realistic, but I'm emotionally invested, right? Why? Because some other part of my mind takes that very seriously, okay? So that's projection in a nutshell. Same thing. You know, uh, you have a shitty day and you take it out on your partner or your friend. Projection. Somebody who constantly berates other people for the flaw which they obviously possess but don't seem able to note. Projection the person who keeps getting into the same relationship over and over and over again and don't seem to notice that they're dating like the same person and the relationship is blowing up in the same way. Projection. Like these mechanisms are operating all the time and it would be hard to say that they're not. Like I would, you know, right? So the idea is given that this projection exists, the essence of the alchemical project is projection. In alchemy, classical alchemy, your psychological contents and symbolic contents are taking as the canvas of their projection, chemical interactions. And so as they happen, you're perceiving what occurs in symbolic terms. Two chemicals mixed together, they turn white. That to you has a certain kind of magical spiritual significance, right? The albedo, mm -hmm. whitening or whatever. But anything can be a substrate, theoretically, for the kind of projection. And so when I think about alchemy, I don't necessarily limit myself to the idea of beakers and bottles and fluids. What I try to do is I try to look at what are we actually talking about? If we take at face value, charitable face value, the sort of description of the alchemists, that they are manipulating things outside themselves and thereby manipulating things inside themselves, 
And in changing their internal reality, changing the way that they perceive the world, and therefore the only universe that they experience, right? So changing oneself changes the world. And in changing the world, you change yourself, right? Through a projective mechanism. Well, what does that mean? So can I, can I tell you a quick story? Actually? Please. Okay. So, so we talked at the outset, but I don't know if it'll make the cut, that I'm an old school role player. So role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons. I've been playing these things since I was four or five. And I've been running games as a dungeon master, which is not primarily an S&M kink thing in this context, uh, since, since I was like 10. Um, <laughs> since I was like 10. And I'm not, a, I'm not a forever DM, as they say, but certainly I run a lot and have run for many, many thousands of hours. My actual, if I, if I had to say that I had one sort of field of practice that in my life in terms of hours spent, it's probably role-playing. I've spent more hours playing role-playing games, writing role-playing games, running role-playing games than I have virtually any other activity. And it deeply infuses the way that I think about other things. And role-playing games are interesting because the DNA of things like Dungeons and Dragons has come to be, in the past 50 years, deeply influential on other aspects of recreational culture. It definitely informs mass cultural phenomena like the popularity of Lord of the Rings, right? Not the book, which precedes D&D and is an influence on, but the way that that catches in the culture. Game of Thrones. There are so many things now and like the, the broad adoption of geek culture, the sort of dominance, in fact, of geek culture in the pop culture sphere, right? That it's superheroes and monsters and space aliens. All that stuff was just pure geekery. One of the ways that it's also inflected is that the language the mechanical language of D&D has spread out. So like Pokemon, uh, how many kids in the world have played Pokemon? Well, Pokemon have hit points, HP, that's D&D. They've got levels, that's D&D. D&D innovated a lot of these things that we now think of as central to the kind of gameplay where you are adopting a persona, where you're not just Pac-Man, who it's, I'm not sure what Pac-Man's motivations are, um, right? Instead, you have this like customizable person and you are living their life recently because of lockdown had the pleasure to finish the witcher 3 which I, I don't get a chance to buy a lot of video games but i have to say it it's a maybe triumph of the human spirit is strong but it was very compelling 280 hours i put into this thing right and i got other things i gotta do like it was that kind of compelling and where it was compelling it was compelling because it borrows these structures from conventional tabletop role playing okay so the story i want to tell so I run a lot of role-playing games and I run a lot of different kinds. And there is a game that I run for uh, a bunch of my colleagues at the university, which is called Godlike. And Godlike isn't sort of hunting monsters with swords. The, the basic setup of Godlike is superheroes in World War II, okay? So if you can imagine the first Captain America movie, except with all of the Avengers and you're fighting Nazis, that's Godlike. So a bunch of profs and people, right? These are people who have often a keen interest in history and superhero films get together. And we've been playing this game for about five years, right? Try to get together every once in a while and they battle Nazis across, across Europe with superheroic persona. And I don't want to name names because I know some people are, are concerned about the impact that this might have on the perception of their career. So I won't name names, but the point is this. In the second act of this long game, and like five years is a long time, the players had been going through, uh, this is going someplace, I swear. The players had been going through a long thing where they were going through the Pacific. And the crux of it turned out that the villains were a group of a breakaway sect of apocalyptic Buddhists. 
okay, who were trying to cleanse the world by dragging it into the lowest Avicii hell. That's what it turned out the big plot was. That doesn't matter that much. They work their way through the Buddhist temple, and finally they come across these sort of doomsday device that these apocalyptic, heretical Buddhists have come up with, which is called the Black Buddha, okay? And so they come on it, and it's this massive black statue, which is composed of kind of liquid agony, as I described it, right? Which they've been drawing out of people to create something. And the idea is to create a kind of a singularity of so much suffering that it like drags the world down to hell and cleanses it, okay? So fine. So the day that I was supposed to run this game, this final game where they dealt with the Black Buddha, I was not in a good place. I was depressed. And, and I was experiencing really deep waves of, of nihilism and anxiety and depression. Some around the environment, some around politics, some around my own aging and the imminence of death, like the sorts of things human beings deal with. But I was having a pretty bad run. And I was a bit burnt out with work. That didn't help. Right? I felt like I was pointed the wrong way, but I had been going through a really bleak stretch. And I had canceled the game the last time because I felt so terrible. But again, it's coming up and it's like, I can't just keep canceling. Like I have to get out there and, and do this thing, right? So first off in the morning, I'm like, I can't handle this. I'm like, not just in a good place. I can't, I can't get out and perform in this way. I can't do spontaneous storytelling, interactive storytelling in this way. And then I made this decision. And I was like, no, I am going to go. I am going to go. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pour myself into this thing. So here's what happens. They, they get to the Black Buddha. And they, at first, they do all the things that players do, basically, in these kinds of games. They shoot at it. And that does nothing. <laughs> so, and, right, <laughs> just passes without a ripple. You can't, you can't shoot existential horror to death. So, um, but then gradually, because they're a smart bunch and they're concerned with this sort of thing, somebody finally realizes, oh, the only way to transform this thing is from within. And so one after another, the players are like, I jump inside of it. And they jump their characters in. And at this moment, I began to run a kind of, um, I don't know, like psycho-spiritual gauntlet on them, which is to say that I started to issue this like stream of consciousness sort of grind, which was partly based on the concerns of their characters, right? Because their characters, we've been playing for a few years, their characters have well-developed biographies and stuff, right? Mm. So it started by drilling into some of the deep concerns of the characters. Like one of the characters' wife had recently left him for a dentist. And so I got at that character by questioning the reality of love. But I mean, I did it not just uh, is love real? I did it with the full force of everything that I could bring to bear in terms of philosophical nihilism and materialism about love just being chemicals and reproduction of robots and right, all that stuff. Love sure. is not real. Blast it. Another character, right? Not just the character, but also the player is deeply concerned with questions around enlightenment right? And around spiritual alignment. And I blasted that character with enlightenment is a lie. It's self-delusion. It's brain rotting masturbation. It's just your meditation is just shutting yourself off and checking into the world. And like, I brought everything I had to bear and watched them sort of twist on the pin. And the responses that the players gave in this context, they rapidly figured out the game here. The game is I'm going to vomit. I'm going to vomit the worst blackest things that I can imagine, right? And your job is you are going to summon from within your character, right? And, and your own experience, something to counter that. And that's what they did. They started giving me the counter arguments. Well, no, love is real because da-da-da-da-da-da. And no, like enlightenment and wisdom are a real thing. 
And gradually, they sort of shrank the Black Buddha away until eventually it evaporated. Hmm. And then their characters walked out quite stunned. And I think we wrapped the scene shortly thereafter. The players themselves looked shaken. And they were. A couple of them contacted me afterwards and were like, what was that? Like, but notably, they really felt that there was something powerful that they had gotten from that. There was a kind of ritual participatory transformative experience that goes way beyond, like, <laughs> I don't want to give people the idea this is what's happening in every D&D game. I'm a weirdo. But there was this powerful thing that they participated in. But also quite notable for me was that I left feeling better and feeling transformed. And why? Because rather than sitting in the dark and wrestling my own demons, I put my demons on the table, embodied them, and I let my friends fight them. And I couldn't have just done that if I had just sat there crying at the table and going, everything seems bleak. We've all had that experience where we feel like shit and our friends are like, well, it's not that bad. But that's not what I did. Instead, right, and I'm not saying that this is like some genius form move, it was mostly intuition. But the observation that I had after the fact was, right, I externalized it into something that was symbolic. And then symbolically speaking, my friends banded together to take the demon on with everything they had. And I, in turn, was the devil's advocate. I spoke for the demon and not just blasting what the characters believe or what their players, no, sorry, what their characters believe, but also what the players, what mattered to them. Now, you got to be careful with this kind of stuff. That would be boundary crossing in lots of contexts, right? Like it almost scuffs the line with therapeutic technique, and I'm aware of that. But at the same time, I think that marks a really powerful, it, it points at something. And I think it's yes. something that is not yet well understood, but it's very central to my understanding of alchemy and projection, what I call narrative alchemy. The -hmm. idea that characters are a much better substrate for inner transformation, ultimately speaking, than Mm -hmm. chemicals. Chemicals are predictable, but so are characters to some extent, and characters absorb our projections more easily. That's why we're sad when the Harry Potter books end, and it's why why people pestered Sherlock Holmes, or uh, Arthur Conan Doyle to bring back Sherlock Holmes. They couldn't take the idea that this fictional person, and it's why indeed fictional resurrections are so powerful that they're the dominant spiritual feature of huge slices of the planet's idea about what religion and spirituality are of characters. So anyway, sorry, that was kind of a, <laughs> that was kind of a long tour, but, but what I'm saying about alchemy is, you know, it's easy to get locked into looking at alchemy in its previous forms as this set of things. But the real key is to dig into that stuff and figure out, phenomenologically, what is this talking about? And then to use the best science you've got, because the the alchemists were using the best science they had. And Jung, in turn, was using the best science he had. But it was 100 years ago, almost, in some cases. We've got some serious advances. And if you start putting this stuff into dialogue with that, so like Solveig Coagula is a good example, right? Dissolve and bring together. I take that as an alchemical thing. And I take it to mean, right, differentiation and integration, solve at coagula. But I also take that further. I think about it in terms of the patterns of structural dissociation that we see in regular brain functioning and neuroconnectivity, that there are these constant areas that are integrating together. And the way that they integrate together changes our entire experience of consciousness in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, right, if you look at the neural mappings of you know, something like psilocybin, for instance, right? It's radical changes in your sense of being and, and potential in reality. Well, you know, it shuts the default mode network off. 
And then, you know, things have to route differently. And so you get synesthesia because areas that aren't used to communicating suddenly are communicating. And right. So it's kind of a weirdly configured house party, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so all of a sudden you got a whole new world, right. And like a stroke of insight, sometimes people have a sudden, you know, like a brain insult or something sudden that can reveal an entire dimension to their experience. Micro seizures, which have been linked to religious experience in some research, right? Same thing. You have a sudden electrical event, things are connected differently. Boosh. See everything differently. Everything's connected differently. So this constant flux and flow of the inner landscape, in a way, I see alchemy as being trying to understand the phenomenology and the mechanisms of what's happening there. Cognitive science is a brilliant tool for that. But cognitive science needs phenomenology to attach to to sort of understand the inner experience of it. Mm-hmm. And then in turn, to use that to look at the work that people have been doing on this problem for, you know, a um, hundred thousand years and see what the hell they've been doing. And then look at that and say, great, that's a pretty good idea. Now, how can we improve that? Or how can we refine it? Or how can we streamline it? You know? Yes. Um, yes. And that, that's sort of my vision of it. Yeah. You know, and, beautiful and, vision. And it's something that applies not just to your work, because when you do inner work, that caches out outside of you. And some inner work is about your relationships. I mean, that's the whole jam with therapy. It's like, well, one thing you're going to have to accept is that repairing your relationship with your mother is going to affect you, but also, right, it's going to take you doing things with your own inner model of your mother. And that's actually where the locus of work is usually. Yes. And it's just hard for people to wrap their head around. But yeah. Mm. Sorry, I kinda went off on a bit of a tear mm. there, but I get enthusiastic. No, I appreciate it. And it's it's really good stuff. So some particularly powerful themes. And here I wonder if we can weave in mm, let's see if I, it might be possible to, to weave in some themes relating to the philosopher's stone, relating to mm. the psychoid relating to the unus mundus and that's your oh. job but i'm going to say some things here. Um, okay and also mercurius oh wow we're getting into the heavy it, the heavy deep esoteric stuff okay yeah. well yeah but 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 I, I want to ground it in this because you've you've i think serviced us here with a real lived example of a five-year journey of deep play and transformation through play culminating in at least this particular chapter with this event of the uh, liquid agony and an opportunity both for you and for your fellow players to relate on either side, although both of you relating to both sides because of Mm -hmm. that dynamism of that relationship of how we come to terms with and ultimately transform through be that which is before and be that which is after a confrontation with all that within us might, um, uh, struggle against various vicissitudes of being and struggle against the 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 void of meaninglessness we 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 can face as existential finite beings and yet still then feel into and touch together that which can ground us in its groundlessness a kind of love a kind of a a meaning in being here together and a deep appreciation for that whole process so truly alchemy as i've heard you define and um how it resonates very much with me this way uh, as the art of transformation mm. um and so with this as a framing what w- what strikes me is that the alignment of the characters 
and uh, you yourself as sort of holder in this space, but importantly, the structures of that game that's being created, that yes. the alignment then um, is not only that inner alignment to be found within the individual, but that there was an appropriateness of relationship, which yes, blurs the boundaries, but appropriately looks to blur the boundaries between this kind of what could be a therapeutic environment, but then also a kind of deep play, but something transformative, you know, such subtlety and mastery required to utilize this boundary appropriately, particularly for the kinds of world building and culture making um, on the cusp and in front of us right now because too much therapy and we're doing something different, but without coming from that appropriateness of developmental capacity, what is proximal to the developmental capacity of everyone is, is so crucial to being able mm -hmm. to participate fully and to really bear up with what is the, 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 the fullest kind of, what is, <laughs> what is the truth of that to then be presence, but then to dissolve that, hey, like how can we bear up in alignment with what we have and then let go together, but to bear up again as something that is you know, more integrated, able to withstand the maelstrom surrounding and be a kind of beacon that can extend the hand and together kind of come into an alignment which is both internal and external. So this is a beautiful um, launch pad we have here. And it's and I and I invite you know our listeners to consider how this kind of deep play, which which in which in a deeply important sense is a serious kind of play, right? It it, it was within yeah. a game, but this is not this is no joke. This kind of liquid agony, hey, this is no joke at all. It's fun. And, it's a very strange, fun kind of taxing fun. And you know, my players, you know, will often say, but like. I take this stuff seriously. My, my, my partner, my girlfriend, Ariana, often says, she's like, I'm amazed at how much work you put into these things. And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, you know, not work, effort, right? But yeah, mm -hmm. effort. Because yeah, you got to like give it. You have to really invest. And, uh, you know, uh, what, what's the line from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Uh, Laughs are cheap. I'm going for gasps. Well, like there's a, it's like, it's one thing getting people to laugh at a table is easy, but yes, serious play, del mm -hmm. delving into things that are deeper drama and touch us personally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, serious yes. play. Absolutely. Yes. So before us is a grand need to realize together the creation of novel games that are not entirely departures from those games we have created previously and nor entire departures from the very characters we've created in ourselves which can step into novel territory but this clearing that we're a part of to harken back to earlier parts in the conversation mm -hmm. i think it it um it begs of us it begs of us to create something together which is capable of attending to and transforming artfully in relation to the chaos mm -hmm. um that's swirling around us and through there there's so much opportunity um, for genuine thriving and creation, um, but also something that can hold as well the reality of this requirement we have to be together also in our suffering. Now, okay, so there are, let's, let's say there are errors along the way. There are paths which um, may be real paths to walk, but that do importantly do not further. And we might need to wind our way back to something that is more wholesome and generative and moving towards, let's say, the light. 
but to hold that in appropriate relation and something which can uh, appear as though a mirage there to differentiate them between mirage and the real water in the desert. Hey, I wonder the role that um, Mercurius could play in this kind of thing like this, because what we're also touching, if we are touching that, that echo of our time, which stands before us, Hey, like through the liquid agony to <laughs> go back to the, to the game, that which makes possible the transformation and movement toward something this directionality is moving together we are also as well speaking in the landscape of the self the landscape of of god and the sacred as we as we encounter it and what can happen is that we can um that that's a relation to hold very much appropriately right this relationship between ego and self and the constellation of these archetypes these alignment of players has to be such that they bring their appropriate skills and talents to bear in a certain formation with certain timing knowing that they are playing roles and are of the whole but do not necessarily um like they do not stand for the whole absent their relations and they just play their part they play their part and I'm interested in this this notion of the trickster, and, and I I could say much on this um, maybe yeah. for further um, conversations. But how, and and I'm interested in linking this with the kind of philosopher's stone, which you might have to give an articulation of. But mm-hmm. what what is it we have to be wary of, or what's the kind of playing we can do that ultimately plays with ourselves in such a way that prevents an appropriate revealing of water and can be instead mirage? Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm writing a book, which I've been sort of collecting chunks on and plan to sort of dang it earnest over the summer, um, which, which relates to a bunch of this material. And the working title of my book, which is a bit tongue in cheek, but not that tongue in cheek, uh, which is maybe a good metaphor for serious play, is uh, shape shifting, a practical guide. Mm. Now, I'm really trying to tap into something about Mercurius. And The way that I, I mean, to talk about Mercurius, okay, what's Mercurius? Mercurius is this funny intercessory or bridging figure within symbolism. You sometimes encounter him with dream, but the idea is that he's curiously neither male nor female and is possibly, you know, sort of the son of God and the devil. It's sometimes expressed that way. He has a paradoxical quality and a shifting quality. This, right, he's mercurial. He's Mercurius, but more than just sort of Mercury the speedster or Hermes the wise, he's got this trickstery twinkle in his eye, smirk, you know, kind of thing going on. He's an interesting figure, and um, we could talk separately at some point about the appearance of this figure in dreams. If people are interested in a really cool account of Mercurius, you should track down, there's a comic, a dream comic by Rick Veitch called Rare Bit Fiends, which has been published since the 90s. I have I've been collecting it for years, but in the last couple of years, he issued issue 22 and 23 where there was a 20 year gap in producing this comic. When he came back, it turns out he's a hardcore Jungian. And so this is a, an awesome comic book of his personal explorations into this material. And he starts to encounter Mercurius in his dreams um, as played by, I don't know, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, I think, in his dreams, which is really funny. Benedict Cumberbatch is an awesome Mercurius, let me say. So Mercurius is this figure, and Mercurius stands as a kind of like, you know, not a guardian and not a messenger exactly, but something that accompanies you on the threshold to deeper levels. So one thing you have to consider is, right, for us at the conscious level, 
things are almost necessarily intrinsically polarized and aspectual. Okay, so we tend to see things in pairs of opposites. And, and in some cases, we are incapable of seeing past differences. So if you look at like that famous picture of the duck rabbit, you can see a duck or you can see a rabbit, but you can't see a duck rabbit at the same time, not really. You can kind of grasp the like non thing, but like there's something you're picking and it tends to be mutually exclusive. The more open you are, the more open you're gonna to be to flipping it around and you will find that delightful, like a Necker cube. And the less open you are, the more that ambiguity is gonna piss you off and you're gonna to want to stabilize and solidify things. And I'm generalizing, but that's a pretty consistent finding in personality psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Low ambiguity tolerance people tend to get rigidly angry and punitive when things stop following the rules. And this is something you see in the anomalous card task and, and a bunch of other interesting experiments. We can talk about that stuff at length. I actually was just on um, another podcast a while ago, a Ben Boyce's podcast. We did an episode. I talked a bit about anomalous cards. So if people are going to check that out and a bit about some other experiments in Spain, but the point is, okay, that's your conscious level. You get these polarizations and the way that things seem opposite is you're capable of switching construal on that. So, you know, man and woman, are often presented as an opposite pair. But in what way are they opposite? Are they opposite like black and white are opposite? Are they opposite like positive and negative are opposite? It doesn't seem like it. Like they, they've got probably 95% in common in terms of structure and genetics. There are some differences and the differences are just enough that they cause misunderstanding. <laughs> right? Routine misunderstanding. But people also exaggerate those differences. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Like what the fuck are you talking about? That's in my opinion, just not true. Right? There's much more in common. The same thing goes for other kinds of identity differences between humans. You know, um, I had an Irish friend when I lived in Cambridge, England, who an American once mistook for an English person, and she hit the roof. She hit the roof. I'm not, in, right? And I thought at the time, that was so peculiar until somebody told me they loved my accent. And I said, I don't have an accent. And they said, yes, you do. You have an American accent. And I said, I certainly do not. <laughs> you know, I have a Canadian accent. At best, I speak standard newscaster or something. Yeah. Anyway, so, right, so like tiny differences, but the differences become the point of differentiation. So man and woman, in what sense are those opposite? Well, you can treat them as cosmic opposites. You can treat them as orthogonals. Like you can relate them in different ways, but some people treat them as exclusive opposites. That's the realm of consciousness. At the other end, at the self, whatever that means, the deep ground from which consciousness emerges, but that is not itself contained within consciousness, right? The fundamental substructures of our cognition, the things that are pre-egoic, pre-conceptual, pre-grammatical, pre-right? That, that substrate that, that cognition emerges from and that our being emerges from is also pre-aspectual and pre-polarized. It contains all things and all possibilities, right? It's like the Tao or something. Mm -hmm. It contains all this stuff. It has all that stuff in it. It's ultimate reality without form or something, right? Well, so what's in the middle? Between regular as polarized existence and completely dissolved, there are no contradictions and no dualities, like what's in the middle? And the answer is Mercurius. Mercurius is a funny paradoxical figure who dances down the fractal line between the black and the white and winks at you while it's happening to be like, I am not the final answer. 
And yet at the same time, I'm going to sort of show you psychically how there can be an admixture of these two things, polarization and non-polarization, which themselves seem opposite. So that's how I think about Mercurius. It shows up in lots of ways, but one of the big things about him is he's got that shape-shifting quality. And he partakes of that because if you think about it, it's like, if the ground of being, whatever you want to mean that to mean, philosophically speaking, and, or in terms of physics, or in terms of neurocognition, or however, right? The ground of being is a lot of potential, and then your actual state is a lot of actuality, right? And so necessarily, it's the case that the state of potential is a shapeshifter, right? It contains it at all the potential that an individual organism, like a tiger, is an instance of evolution's action. But natural selection is a process occurring through a field, and it can produce lots of different things and different shapes. It is change itself. It is the, the engine through which things are transformed, right? And we have that engine inside of us. Natural selection is operating within us as well, right? That's why our brain can reconfigure so fast on the fly. We internalized evolution and shape-shifting. Our brains are little shape-shifters. That's, that's the joke. We're a machine made of machines that can make new machines. Um, so Mercurius in that sense is that, is that shape-shifting and that paradoxical, that winky capacity. But how can that go badly? I mean, play, I think, is integral to the kind of work I'm talking about because play necessarily participates in what I call uh, the as-as-not, right? I, I may be borrowing that term, to be honest. I can't remember, but that's what I was called, the as-as-not. And what I mean is that, you know, like we talked about the films, you look at the film and I ask you, are werewolves real? And you say, no but also you take them as real. If you don't take them as real at all, you're not interested. You have to be able to suspend disbelief. That's why your cat doesn't care about what's happening on your TV, unless the frame rate is really high. Now they can see stuff because we have 4K, in, right? But before that, it's just, it was just nothing. They didn't see anything, so they didn't care, right? Why would they? There's nothing for them to get invested in. Likewise, if I watch certain kinds of cinema, because I don't know the grammar of the cinema, right? I've, Bollywood films are difficult for me to track because I don't know the symbolic grammar of the cinema. I don't understand, or um, I'm just old enough that I find some of the conventions of anime hard to track. Whereas lots of my students and friends and loved ones, right, uh, like anime. But like I was speaking to um, some siblings of a Chinese friend of mine a few years ago, and I said something and they did this. They went like this. Hmm. And I went blank and I was like, what are you doing? And they went like this again. And eventually their sister said, oh, they're making the teardrop symbol, which is an indication that you've said something embarrassing. They're imitating anime, right? <laughs> and when I watch anime, it's just that much farther. I mean, I grew up on enough Western animation that I look and I don't, I can't track facial expressions and stuff. I don't understand what the conventional is. It's like looking at kabuki masks. I don't know what I'm looking at, you know? So, mm. okay. So you got to be able to get invested. But then, you know, play that as, as not, Play is central to all this stuff. Ritual is play. Metaphors are intrinsically play. They are both themselves and not themselves. That's what play is. When we talk about play, we talk about animals pouncing around and pretending, acting as though they are threatening. But they're not threatening, that's the point. They're practicing. But, but they, have to, they have to take it seriously. You can't half-ass it, right? Same thing. I mean, play is so essential. This is Vygotsky. But play and imitation are so essential to internalization and development because we imitate and take in other practices. And that's so essential that, that we will do things that other animals won't do. So do you know like the chimp box? No. Okay, cool experiment. 
So they, they take a box and it's got like cranks and wheels and whatever. And what they do is they put it down in front of a chimp. Okay. And they turn the crank and they push the button and they do the wheel and they pull this little tray and there's a peanut inside and chimps like peanuts. So they do this a couple of times and chimps are smart. They'll watch a couple of times and then they understand the sequence and they'll do the thing and get the peanut. And you could do the same thing with a toddler, human toddler, right? You can show them this box, you turn the crank, you do the thing, you do the operations, you pull the little tray up and there's a candy and the kid will eat the candy. You do it a couple of times, the chimp will get it, the kid will get it. Okay, fine. And then the second phase of the experiment is you do the same thing and the box, the mechanics of the box are the same, except it's transparent. The box is transparent. You can see through. Mm -hmm. And if you see through, you can see that the tray is disconnected from all this mechanism. The mechanism mm -hmm. is totally superfluous to the tray. So then you do the same thing. You turn the crank, you pull the thing, you open the little tray, and then you, you go back. And what happens is the chimp looks at this, looks at you like you're an idiot, pulls the tray open and eats the peanut. Because it's just like, what are you, dumb? But the kid will continue to go through all the operations and eat the candy, even once they have seen transparently through the box. Now, the sort of short form interpretation of that is, wow, kids are stupid, right? <laughs> like ch chimps are smarter than toddlers. It would be the low grade. But that's deeply mistaken because that's wrong. The fact is that the kid has internalized the behavior because humans have intrinsically, and this takes us back to the goslings, right? The geese and the goslings. Humans have a capacity for imitation, and what that kid is doing is making a bet. A bet that although they do not understand the actions that you, the adult, are doing, that there's a reason for them, that there's a payoff to imitating you, even though they don't know what it is. And you can see that with kids all the time. They do their little tea parties, and they'll imitate adult actions that they cannot possibly have an understanding of what they mean. My eldest niece, because she was the only child in the mix for a while, went through a whole period of time where every time she sat down on the couch, she would go, ah. And I couldn't understand this until I realized that she was a bunch of around old, exhausted adults who, when they yeah. would sit down, would go, ah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she just picked it up. We love this stuff when kids do it. It's like, oh, kids say the thing. But the point is, they're internalizing things and they're making a bet. And play mm -hmm. is all about that internalization. And play yeah. is essential. Like, it rides a fine line. Think about this. Tickling. Mm. Tickling is an interesting form of play because mm. if you're walking home from the pub at 3 a.m. and somebody jumps out of a dark alley and grabs your ribs, you do not experience that as tickling. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> you experience yeah. an attack. Yeah. If somebody that you don't like puts their hands on your ribs, you don't experience it as tickling. You experience it as an attack. Tickling is a thing that happens when somebody threatens you, but they are not threatening. You trust them. And so then you experience this funny paradoxical feeling. Tickling is weird. It's unpleasant, but also it's kind of pleasant, right? That's a very pure instance of play in its paradoxical nature. It's as, as not. It's a threat, but it's not a threat. It's pleasant, but it's unpleasant. That's the space that Mercurius operates. That's the space that symbols mm -hmm. operate in. It's mm -hmm. the space that, right, symbols and metaphors operate in. It's the space that ritual operates in. And ultimately speaking, right, that's the transformational space. Mm -hmm. um, as far as safeguarding that relationship against the pitfalls of transformation, uh, I can speak to that, but. Yeah. Well, is it, is it the way, the way I'm seeing this going maps on with my own experience? If there are figures which embody this kind of archetype, then mm -hmm. um, this as, as not this um, play that's so deeply serious that the, the pleasure and the pain are all 
in this very delicate relationship on the cusp of transformation in this clearing of transformation then if someone becomes aware that there's a certain power then in uh, the orienting impulse and the imitative impulse in people to follow them along the edge then then they they start a cult Yes, that's where I'm going, Addison. I'm trying. We're going very gently. Uh, not the cult thing, but in terms right. of understanding what is the kind of because it seems to me that um, that there are real failure conditions of how these deep zones, these deep dynamics, these deep alignments, temples of transformation are set up, and there's a certain kind of guru type dynamic where someone decides that satsang you know divine presence is to be found in relation through me and only me in some sense and it's not to be um realized as a centralizing but decentered um right dynamic and and who knows i you know i'm not an expert in that so it may be the case that there are you know, whatever, uh, personality and guru-driven systems that are perfectly good, right? You know, so, so um, Vajrayana often has sub-traditions where it's like the word of transmission. It's not even meditation-driven. It's just like the transmission is what's mm-hmm. relevant. I'm wary of that for reasons akin to what you mentioned, which is that charisma can become wildly dark and out of control. And, mm-hmm. and right. And especially disembedded from its context, right? The number of mm-hmm. you know, gurus that come from an original spiritual context, and then they get mixed up in North America. And what happens? They end up mm-hmm. having sex with their followers exploitatively. You see it over and over again. Now that's not invariable, but what's mm-hmm. missing is the question. How does that go off the rails? And I think that's really revealing of both what is required in the inner component and what is required in, in the relating component to make play not become malignant. And the guiding, constraining ethos, right? The, the constraining factor here, or that is to say, yeah, right? Is uh, appropriate love. I know it sounds corny, but appropriate love. And, and that's, a, that's a, it's important. I mean, that's a fine grained thing, appropriate love. Because there are forms of love that are appropriate and forms of love that are inappropriate. But like step one, love. Love and power are Basically, right, basic love and basic kind of power drive stuff are mutually exclusive. To the extent you have a power relationship with somebody, you don't have a love relationship with them. And that's a thing that you see turn up all the time. It's why parents often make the mistake of trying to demonstrate their love by controlling the purse strings and attempting to force development on their children. And this is a mistake because it's a power thing. And what you want is a love thing. Now, love doesn't mean that you let everybody do everything they want and run around all the time. You can love somebody and do something because you love them. Although people justify horror in the name of love, but like legitimate, real, authentic love. And then you have to hit like, well, but what kind of love, you know, if you're having a relationship with your child, you don't want to have erotic love. That is not an appropriate form of relation that is good for a child's development. Even if you don't think of that as being like sex, right? Erotic love is consumptive and acquisitional. And sometimes parents do have that form and you can see it. They want a child to complete them. It's an object which is designed to complete them, to fill their their own narcissistic void or something. Okay. You also can't necessarily have a relationship of philea, friendship with a child. People want to do that too. I'm best friends with my kid. Well, your job isn't to be best friends, right? Your job is to be 
the parent, right? Mm -hmm. But the same goes in other domains, right? Although it, it's although agape is an appropriate relationship to have to your child, right? The, the love of parent for child, where you are forming an imitative matrix for them to model and to test and whatever, right? You are giving them the love that creates beings. It's also often inappropriate. It's not, that is not an appropriate model to have with your friends. You know what's super obnoxious with a friend? Somebody who keeps trying to ladle agape on you. <laughs> like stop trying to drive my self-development. It's really, it's condescending, mm -hmm. right? We don't like it, why? Because the relationship between friends is phileic. It's meant to be equal. If there's a slope in that at all, friendship has poured out a little bit and there are friendships that are like that where really there's a power dynamic built in and like one person is the lower friend and the and that's always creating a certain kind of tension there's something always a little unhealthy about it right mm -hmm. invariably mm -hmm. friendship is about a relationship between equals so figuring out an appropriate form of love is the best safeguard love and humor are probably the two best safeguards against malignant sort of malignant play. And there is malignant play, right? People can use play malevolently. They can use play and charisma to manipulate people. And that's a thing. But also it's the case that the trickster figure itself can be quite dark. I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes it's Bugs Bunny and it's taking dynamite to the overstuffed, self-important structures of authority. But sometimes it's the Joker. Hmm. And like, when I say the Joker, I have a, a friend... Uh, my friend Bruce Barnes, who's a Jungian analyst, and he sort of one of the big focuses of his work is on the archetype of the trickster. And he, I remember, said quite seriously, the first time we were talking about it, he was like, the dark trickster killed Heath Ledger. And I said, I'm not sure how figuratively I should be taking that statement. Like, what do you mean? And, you know, he was like, look, he method acted himself right? Method acting is just dressed up shamanism as far as I can tell, right? Like you go and you try to embody the state in this really radical way, inhabit the life, right? It's like role playing on steroids. So, you know, he moved into the space of a dark figure. And when you think about Heath Ledger's Joker, that performance, mm. right, is just radically magnetic and compelling. And what's so mm. compelling about it? Because it was more compelling, in my opinion, than Joachim Phoenix, who's doing a different thing. But his is a Joker of pathos, and Heath Ledger has no pathos in his character. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. a character who has looked into the howling of the abyss and come out the far side, dedicated to the idea of tearing everybody down. He's right. Which is like yes. Bugs Bunny, except sometimes things need to be torn down and it doesn't. And sometimes things don't. Mm. So you can get malignant forms. Malignant is hard, but you can get dark forms of an archetype. An archetype can get overextended. So how do you mm. guard against that? Well, I have been, in my own writing this month, I've been thinking about a lot of the sort of quasi-Latin and Latin terms that John has been using to talk about some of this interpersonal stuff. And so you got your religio and your, right, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. thought for my own work and for a book chapter that I'm writing for a, a book that he's editing, I have in part uh, started writing about the sort of the importance in this sort of work of hilaritas, an underrelated thing, hilaritas. And hilaritas is just things being funny, <laughs> deeply funny. Mm -hmm. This is a binding force between people. Mm. Humor is attractive. It plays a massive role in, in attraction of all kinds. It plays a massive role in friendship. And there's a reason why, right? And if you really start plumbing it, 
you start mm-hmm. to like having a shared sense of humor is almost essential mm-hmm. to being close. It's like mm-hmm. musical tastes, but more so. It tells you not just that somebody is quick and like one of the great under, underrated pleasures of life is having clever, funny friends who say clever, mm-hmm. funny things. It's wonderful, mm-hmm. right? I'm blessed with a lot of clever, funny friends. And so all day long, I don't do a lot of social media. I don't have Facebook and thing, but nevertheless, all day long, I'm bathed in my friends saying funny things. Mm-hmm. And, and it's wonderful. And they're quick. And right. So hilaritas is, is an aspect of this kind of building. And also it's a safeguard. I mean, good belly laugh is one of the best banishing rituals you can use. You want to monkey around with demonic forces. That's fine. I mean, you got to deal with them at some point. So you might as well. But then at the end of the day, you want to ground out, like eat something and then have a good laugh. And a good laugh shatters the self-seriousness of, right? Nothing is, nothing is funnier than having a good laugh at somebody who's too busy pretending that they're the king of the universe and being able to take the piss out of them. We all know that's why the jester's got a special role in the court. His role is to thumb his nose a little bit at the king. And why? Because the king knows that that's important. So appropriate love and hilaritas and appropriate love has that like friendly balance. And the same thing goes for your inner landscape. If you're going to encounter parts of yourself, you have to do it with the right kind of orientation. You have to try to befriend them. It's It's not about dominating them, but it's not about possessing them. It's not erotic in that way, Mm -hmm. which is one of the mistakes we make. We chase, we chase the parts of ourselves in an erotic fashion, or we try to hammer ourselves into self-development, grow up we say to ourselves, which of course was the thing that we got told that screwed us up to begin with half the time. Mm. Right. But friendship, befriend yourself and befriending somebody is not an easy thing. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's really natural, but like befriending people who you might not be inclined or who you have a block against requires a deep fund of charitability. You have to be able to see them and, and reframe them in an ongoing sense. And yet if there was any, if, if we could master one skill on this planet that would bail us out of our problem, it would be friendship. We're shitty at it. And it's kind of a lost mm. art. Mm. Mm. But right. If we could befriend the p- components of ourselves, if we could befriend ourselves and get those things into a friendly relationship. Friends don't always have to agree. I have friends. I don't agree with about all sorts of yeah. things, but we can have a friendly debate. You'll note that that's what's missing in political discourse these days. Nobody can reach across the aisle because they're not friends anymore. Yes, yes. And I could disagree with my friends. I do disagree with my friends. I get into heated debates with my friends. I had a friend go off about climate stuff at the start of the pandemic. And I just did not have, he was sort of going into, well, I guess we'll find out if climate change is real. And I just had no mental bandwidth for this, right? So I just wrote him back and I said, man, I love you, but I've spent all week trying to convince people COVID-19 is real. So can we wait to have this argument when like when we can scream at each other over a bottle of wine within hugging distance? Yeah. And he laughed and he said, yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. And that's friendship. And if we could cultivate that within ourselves, recognize that there can be differences and yet you can still be friends that you can deeply respect somebody and think that they're wrong, that you can respect somebody's choices and recognize that they're not yours and that you can, Recognize that, that what they're doing is, in some sense, in all but the smallest cases, their best stab at the best way to live 
given the damage that they have. Yes. And we've all got damage. We're all yes. traumatized. So, yes. yeah. So, yeah. Hilaritas and friendship is my prescription yes. for how to make this stuff fly. And that's why I mean the house party. The interfaith dialogue is an interesting metaphor, but it's very abstract. And the goal in the interfaith dialogue, presumably, is to create friendships. Because that's when people are going to want to talk about stuff. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, let me let me add a few things in here. I mean, I I really really appreciated that. I think it's um I think it's tremendously wise and um and necessary. My sense is that there are a couple things to to flesh in there. Much of that we've already covered. That would um there's a bit more for it to create than the necessary and sufficient. Hmm. Because yeah, it's a sketch. Yes, and and the the humor critical right relationship obviously with love critical uh. Um, horror as well critical though i don't want to go down that path there's there's something about so we talk about interfaith dialogue the product of that being a kind of friendship yes but then there's a sense there's this deep trust that we we have to have this capacity to trust in the um extend that dignity yeah extend the, the dignity of unique participation and irreducible Value that can only be bestowed through that through that other and yes. the dignity of that opportunity to live and and co-create. It strikes me that beyond the trickster, so the breaking through. Um, but to add add a few pieces because in the in the um, the story that you told this this game that you've been playing for five years and created, there's a sense in which it's a gathering among friends. Um, but at the same time, there's a symbolic structure and a structure that's been created, which has a differentiated kind of hierarchy in it. For example, you have someone who's the dungeon master and they're yeah. playing a certain role. And so the yeah. friends give permission. Give permission. So it's quite complicated in that sense. It's, it's a form of play partly because and this is a thing that people misunderstand if they've never played. The, the relationship between the dungeon master or the game master, the person running the game and the players is not adversarial. Mm -hmm. It is merely apparently adversarial, but it must be apparently adversarial. This is what I mean. They each play a character. I play all the supporting cast, which means I also play the antagonist. I play the bad guys, mm -hmm. right? And like, mm -hmm. you know, you tend to play sort of genre stories. They're fairly action oriented because whatever. Mm -hmm. That's just what it comes out of. Not that there aren't other ones. There's some really great games that just do romance, but I can't get my players on board with them. Anyway. Um, but there are some really interesting indie designs, which is to say it's not all just about violence, but very often it has a kind of action, right? But there is an apparent adversarial thing, which is to say that my role is to embody the adversary, right? So think about me inhabiting the Black Buddha. I'm doing my level best in the same way that if you're playing a chess game with a friend, it's not that they hate you. It's just you want them to play hard. You want them to play against you. If you're engaged in a debate, you want the person you're debating against to come with his best shot. If they flip over, or just give in or cave in, it's very unsatisfying. Same thing if you're playing, you know, I don't know, tennis or something, right? Like you sure. want the other person to play hard. Now, if they're vastly better than you, that's, that's not great usually, right? You get kind of crushed and it sucks. But I have a friend who's big into strategy games, who's one of my gamers, and he plays a lot of strategy games with his brother. And I used to play with them occasionally. I'd get invited over and I'd get destroyed and never won, never. Because they both have these like, these like 
astoundingly sharp and tactical minds and they understand the the structures of these games and they've played a million of them so they can just analyze strategy immediately. So I never won. But my friend won about maybe charitably one quarter of the time. So finally I said to him at some point, I don't get it, man. Like you take such a beating every time and you come up with a strategy and it works once. And then your brother comes at you like the Borg from Star Trek and is just like, I've assimilated your thing and now I'm going to beat you with it. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't understand. Like, how is that fun? And what my friend said made a very deep mark on me. He said, you don't learn anything when you win. You don't learn anything when you win. And I blinked because I was like, my God, like, you're right. You're right. Of course. Like when you win, it's just confirmation. You don't really pick up additional information. What you learn is that your opponent is not, you know, if you really shellack somebody, you just learn that your opponent's not up to snuff. If you want to push your game, you need somebody who's going to match you. So it's that apparent adversarial. So when low one level, they're my friends, my level best to create the appearance that I am, you know, out to get them. And in, in younger games, I run games for a high school, so a group of high school kids, and they have less experience. And so they all paint me as though I'm an adversarial monster, right? Oh, Anderson's going to kill us all. And what they, of course, don't understand, they don't seem to fully absorb is I have the ability to kill them anytime I want. If I say, you all get crushed by rocks, the end, and walk out, that's it. That's the end. I can do that anytime I want to. The rules do not preclude it. But that's not the point. That would be extremely boring for me and for them. The point is to keep the game rolling and to make it satisfying, there has to be attention. Same thing. We watch a movie, we know boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. But there has to be a satisfying interplay and conflict present in that. You know what I mean? So there's this importance then in a shared commitment to the value of playing the game. And that is, yes. I would suggest then, fundamental. It's, it's a constituent part of the transcendental conditions that the self stands to enable right? Yeah. And so we have this condition, so to put that in other language when people transcend it, like w what are the conditions of that must be in place to enable the game making? This deep one being the deep affirmation and extension of the dignity of the status of player to another and that this can be realized at both a rational level but a deeply mystical and interdependent and interconnected yes. level. And yes. it's... Um, Beware of those tricksters who do not uh, appropriately extend the dignity of, of playing the game hey, to everyone. Yeah, I mean, there are things that I look out for, you know, when, you know, be beware of false prophets, you know. It's like there are people who can have very powerful abilities in this domain and powerful personalities, mm. but, but I often, I mean, you know, you look to them. It's like, are you doing the work? You know, and or are you, you know, sometimes people are selling easy answers, right? You know, here are the rules. Well, guess what? There aren't rules. That's the, if there were rules, we would have figured this whole thing out a long time ago, right? It's just not that simple. Like they're guidelines, but guidelines aren't rules. It's not the same thing, you know? Mm. Likewise, you know, I look for people that are exploitative, you know, I look to see, and you know, you look for little things, you know? I have a very finely tuned antenna for cruelty. When I sense cruelty in people, cruelty in their humor or cruelty in, right? And there's a difference. You can be like pretty 
you could be pretty dark in your humor and I will still laugh. But if I sense cruelty in your humor, I don't, I won't hold with that. I cruelty to me has no utility. Um, it's one of the few, actually, I would say like hard points. There are basically like two things I can figure in the universe that as far as I have not, I've not managed to discern the use of yet. <laughs> uh, mm. Cruelty and rudeness. <laughs> I don't know what they're for. I don't know what good they are. Root, I just think there's never a reason to be rude. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be confrontational. Sometimes no, you need I to be confrontational. It. You can even tell someone to fuck off and that's not being rude. But like rudeness and cruelty, I don't get. I look out for those things. Well, there's when signs talking... for other players, hey? There's signs for other yeah. players. This person yeah. is not yet willing, able, and ready to enter into a certain kind of game making. Right. That's right. Yeah. You know, um, and you can look for other kinds of shorthand. I mean, I used to make the joke years ago that <clears throat> if I really wanted to know when I started dating somebody um, how they might be as a, se- as a sexual partner, I would watch them interact with uh, pets, cats specifically. <laughs> because if you can get on with it, and some people hate cats and this is a bit of shorthand but this is the thing I used to say it's like if you can figure out how to please a cat then what you are good at is you're adept at interacting with a non-verbal entity that's a bit cagey about communicating its own pleasure <laughs> right yeah. but if you can like figure that out if you can read a cat then you know how to read on this subtle level what the, how somatics work out and, that, and you're willing to be a bit you know, you're willing to be experimental typically with a cat because they're not all the same and you're bound to get scratched. You're willing to take risks. You're willing to be experimental. Like, obviously, that's it's a slightly glib shorthand, but nevertheless, it's in some ways a useful shorthand. And those sorts of things, how people behave with, how people behave with children, extremely telling mm. to me, right? Mm, yes. How people behave with, the, with their, their parents, right? How somebody treats their parents, is often very telling. How somebody interacts with their, their lover or their partner is very telling. How people you know, comport themselves in debate is telling. And all these things you can look at and you can be like, what does that mean? Like, what, what can I infer from that to playing the big game? The game, the great work. So like I use somebody who I want to be involved in a sort of at the, at the spiritual level as it were, right? Mm. And the answer is most of the time, yes, but like you need to know, you know what you're getting into. <laughs> Yes. Right? Yes. Before you befriend somebody. All right. So we've been going for three hours and it's been a beautiful conversation. I would like to ask one final question if you could take us home. Sure. Um, or I can try. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there will be some of the journey remaining. Um, so there were a few things I had jotted down here, kind of notes that I was interested to hit. And we don't have to hit them all. But I'm interested in, given how much we've brought into this dialogue so far, we've got an available language here together. I'm interested in how, first, I'm interested in a brief articulation of the Philosopher's Stone from an alchemical perspective, which is the kind of like the, in some sense, a deep goal of the, of the whole project. And... I'm also interested in the psychoid and the unus mundus. And I'm, I'm seeing, because for me, imagistically, what's appearing is that it's like, uh, there, there's this sense of alignment within, without, 
between each other and it all together a kind of right relationship of orienting toward and from a um, from and within a clearing of possibility toward mm-hmm. the kind of establishment of a structure, a communication structure, and a protocol for being within it, which is the is is the is the uh, combined co-creative zone of proximal development for relationship building and vitalizing. Um, relation with the world ourselves each other and that in that is wrapped up with you know it, it's not so much it's about extending our own lives it's about involving ourselves in something greater than ourselves which can stand and serve as structure to guide and afford the developmental capacity and participation in life and the realization of that potentiality of those younger and those on different paths right all the different paths along the way this centralizing movement toward establishing that which can afford this um, co-creative developmental possibility a loving possibility and i'm interested in the metaphysics of this um, Mm. and i'm just wonder how you um, sort of understand jung's later work his later blurring of the boundary between the psychological and the metaphysical in a way that i take myself to be in some sense seeking to gesture to from a place that's resonant with how it is we are really connected hey um right and the mystery of that so these terms then yeah please okay so so okay so maybe i'll speak from the practical and then bridge up into the metaphysical so okay you know the whole thing you're talking about this kind of right the, the the clearing and the um, you know the agent uh, sort of arena space in which we're creating whatever this distributed cognition and and communication and, and how friendship plays into that you know and what does that look like um, it looks like this <laughs> right like I like you this was fun thank you. <laughs> Right. But, but that's important. Like, what did we do? We traded conceptualizations and language pieces packs, some of which we've absorbed from common sources, some of which we put on the table right now to try to talk about some shit that we're interested in and about, right. About ourselves and about our past and about where we're going and about where everybody's going. And, and it was interesting. It was interesting because we both brought different things to the table and it was cool and we could see how those things click together and it opened more questions than it closed. Mm-hmm. Right. It looks like this. And, you know, a thing, I mean, I don't talk about this much, but I have a close relationship with John Verveke. And, you know, he was something of a mentor to me, but I, I took classes with him late enough in life that, I, like, I was in my late 20s by the time, like, because I was a high school dropout and I had a number of other career arcs in the middle. So by the time I kind of came to do school in that way. By the time I reconciled myself to institutional education, I was, I had done my own tour and I'd done quite a bit of my own work and I had done a lot of conceptualization. So I knew actually John from way back, friends of mine had him as a prof and weirdly he was my best friend's therapist, totally disconnected from that uh, back when he did that. But so when I re-encountered John, partly what I, what resonated with me was that he had a tremendously developed language. I mean, John the thing about John is he's not performative, 
right? I'm sure there are people out there who think he's a faker, but, but John is just like, if, jo if the university exploded tomorrow, John would do exactly the same thing as he did the day before. He would continue to work on this stuff because he, he lives it. It's mm. just it's who he is, right? Mm. And that gave an acuity and a, and a clarity and stuff. Like, he's sharp. And so taking a class with him, I was like, ah, I have language around this. There's lots of things that I have that I've worked on in this area, but there's an articulation that you have of these issues that's really, right? And yet, I can still see there are places where it's like, well, you're not really getting this, and you're not quite, and I think you could benefit from it, right? And there was a sense of simpatico. There was a sense of alignment. So John was my mentor in that sense, right? And he's, he's been in some sense an academic mentor. And then we became collaborators. So he's a peer, a co-worker, co right? We've worked on projects together. We've operated the lab together for seven years, the, the, the CWSL, the Consciousness and Wisdom Studies Laboratory at U of T. But more importantly than those things and informing them very deeply is that we're friends. And, and in some ways, because of that rich interconnection, more than friends, like, like John is my spiritual brother and we disagree about a lot of things. There are ways that he approaches things that are not how I would approach them. I'm the wild child in the relationship, no question. And I get to believe in nine weird things that John mm -hmm. doesn't have to deal with yet, but gradually that I get to introduce him, right? Which, which has been one of the joys. All right. And, and having kind of an ongoing conversation. It took me years of conversation with John before I could get him to take Gnosticism seriously at all. And, and then, it, and now he's like, I don't know, probably one of the world's leading experts as far as I can tell, um, mm -hmm. which is one of the fun things about being friends with John. Once you get him into something, he outstrips your knowledge rapidly. And I know Gnostics pretty well, but like he gets encyclopedic fast. So what am I getting at? What I'm getting at is that there is something fundamental that goes deeper than the outer layer of the transmission of information as a scholar and even the production of knowledge within the ethos of the academy that is just our friendship and the fact that both of us are approaching this not because it's something that we do to pull a paycheck but because it's just like it's just like the most interesting problem in the world yes. right and, and the friendship, the friendship is important now. And so similarly, like the conversation that you and I are having, we obviously don't know each other very well, although I'd love to do this again. And if you want to appear on my show, I would be honored if you would appear on my show. Um, so awesome. yeah, you know, there is a sense in which, and it seems like YouTube is sort of passing some kind of funny threshold in the last bunch of years where there is like a web work happening where communities are beginning to gel in a way that they didn't quite it's coming into its own as a medium distinct i think mm -hmm. in a way a bit like the podcast developed distinct from radio radio mm -hmm. is a broadcast medium right as per McLuhan. but uh dan carlin of hardcore history was talking recently he was talking about the way that the podcast is intimate it whispers in your ears it's fundamentally bound up with the headphone and so it's just somebody talking gently like velvet directly in your ear it's something so intimate and personal but it. it's different than radio right it's different mm -hmm. similarly podcasts are beginning to form this community stuff and we get we get into the personalities and lives of the people who present in a way that television never let us do right mm -hmm. so this thing that we're doing where we where we create a language to talk about the shit that we want to talk about, mm -hmm. right? 
Uh, and mm -hmm. also encounter each other's beings as people to whatever extent we are capable of authentically expressing in a limited format, blah, 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 all those mm -hmm. qualifiers. This is the game. Mm -hmm. This is how we do it. Because none of us are going to solve this alone. We can mm -hmm. only solve it collectively. And the fact is that nobody's got the answer. Mm. It, that's just not how it works. You mm. can't do things mm. that way. You, but instead, we can co-create a structure of meaning in which we can all participate. So that's the practical level. Okay, so, mm. but your question was metaphysical. I just wanted to make sure I tied that off. The question was metaphysical. So, mm. unus mundus. So the unus mundus is the Jungian term for the one world. It's an old term. Jung sort of, you know, re-deploys re, uh, it or appropriates it, depending on your perspective. And what does it mean? Well, it means the fusion of, of, of spirit and matter or mind and matter, right? So it's like we live in a sundered world where philosophically speaking, it's very difficult. This is the hard problem. It's very difficult to conceive of how consciousness and the properties of consciousness and, and the mind attach to the mechanistic, quantifiable measurable properties of matter. It's, it's just, we can't figure it out. And people think, people want to hand wave it, right? Which is why sometimes you'll get people that get the archaic response. They're like, we just have to forget about all this nonsense we've been concerned with. But I think there's something deeply mistaken about that. It's like, no, if you understand the power of these arguments, they are not just tricks that are being played. Wittgenstein was wrong, right? It's not just about letting the fly out of the bottle. Instead, these are real problems. Now, the thing is, I don't know the answer, obviously. I mean, I've, I've done a bunch of work on consciousness theory. So I have some ideas, right, that, that John and I and Richard Wu wrote. I have some ideas about how this stuff might connect. But even still, I think there's a deep rift, maybe deeper than a soluble. And sometimes I think to myself, well, that's an epistemological limit of human beings, right? Like the smartest dog in the world won't solve this problem. So maybe the smartest human won't either. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think, sometimes I think, no, it's soluble. We just have to work really hard and long. And sometimes I think maybe it's fundamentally insoluble. Like maybe this is, maybe there exist problems that are really actually fundamentally insoluble. And that's one of them, the connection of mind and world. Maybe it's a fundamental mystery, a kind of deep rift with no bottom that cannot be, right? Maybe. And this is the way I think. It's like, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Mm -hmm. what, do, what do I know? So sometimes I think that. Sometimes I think, sometimes I think that, no, there is a deep metaphysical truth to be pulled. And, and, and our intuition that there's one thing, which is a driving intuition in science, that things should reduce down to the one thing, right? Which is an assumption. Maybe it doesn't. Right? This is one of the problems in current physics. We have quantum and we have relativity and we can't make them really talk to each other. It's like mm -hmm. they, we won't mm -hmm. sort it out, right? And there's an assumption built into that, which is that it should be reducible to one consistent thing. And that's an assumption. It's an assumption built into science that our descriptions of reality should be reducible in one consistent whole with a unified factor. And maybe that's not true. Maybe we live in a multipolar reality. Maybe reality isn't monotheistic, it's polytheistic, and principles operate different. Like, we don't know. And who knows, right? It looks like there are some weird, you know, physical constants may be different to different places in the universe. That, too, will screw our conceptions of how stuff works, right? As a brief note on that, one of the examples I use with my students all the time is, like, towards the end of the 20th century, there was more or less one big remaining problem in cosmology. 
okay? It was the question, is the universe gonna keep expanding forever, get more slow and eventually freeze, or is it gonna recollapse into a big crunch, right? So it's like big bang and, or big bang and drift, right? And the only thing you have to do to figure that out is calculate roughly the overall total mass of the universe, right? And, and if there's enough mass, it recollapses from gravity. And if there isn't, it drifts apart and gradually freezes, right? The so-called big freeze, right? So big crunch or big freeze. So finally, they take a whole lot of detailed observations of speed that things are receding from each other in the universe, right? And they compile this data in the, in the late 2000s. And do, do you know? I don't know if you track this stuff. Do you know what they find? Mm -mm. Things are accelerating away from each other. Oh, yes, yes. So this is dark energy, which is just a fancy word for we don't know. Um, they're accelerating. So we think it's either expand but slow down and gradually drift and freeze or recollapse. But no, accelerating. The gas pedal is on, which means we don't know. And so it's important to remember that. We have this assumption that things are going to come down to a unified and consistent whole, but that is an assumption. And, and it's nothing other than that. And it, it would be beautiful, which is why we want it. <laughs> we want it because it would like, ah, oh, and then everything will come. But maybe it won't. Now, metaphysically, the unus mundus. When I'm on board with the unus mundus, the idea that mind and matter ultimately have a continuity, it's in no small part because, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that my mind seems to affect the world in some way and that mm -hmm. the world has an effect on my mind. And so if it is mm -hmm. two worlds, it seems weirdly redundant, hard to track. Some days, Wednesdays mostly, I'm an idealist and I'm like, aha, the trick is there's no material world. Like what do I ever experience except mental events? And I'm like, shit, now I'm backing myself into solipsism. Hmm. Can't do that, okay. Um, and then the problems of idealism, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm inclined to look at some experiences that I've had, unusual experiences that if I'm in a scientific materialistic frame of mind, I throw a ton of statistical and probabilistic science and cognitive bias study and whatever to convince myself that it doesn't matter. But sometimes I think about experiences that I've had that are weird. This is what the Jungians refer to as synchronicity. And the mm -hmm. fact is when you start getting into this work, weird things happen. Mm -hmm. Now, What's the status of those weird things? I don't know. And I approach it sometimes with an eye to like, maybe there's a neurobiological explanation. And sometimes I'm like, no, maybe it is what they say it is, that this is a signal. It's a message that your mind and the world are connected much more deeply than you think, right? That there, and that maybe, maybe, it's not the case that every story that gets told and every ounce of meaning that you bring to bear tricks and that the universe is ultimately meaningless and does not care about you. Maybe, maybe it's more complicated than that. Maybe stories do matter. And at some level they do, they do because they organize reality. You know, the story of Christ has been organizing matter into churches all over the world for quite some time. And a few years ago in a small scale, small and mystical experience, I was wandering down the street and I looked at a Catholic church and I suddenly realized that what I was looking at was the state religion of the Roman empire. It was an embassy of the state religion of the Roman empire. It was like, it was like watching a mastodon wander out of the hedges. I was like, this is a leftover piece of something that's 2000 years old. 
right? And yet, the story of Christ has been faithfully operating to organize matter quite consistently. Did it long before I was born, and it will do it long after I'm dead, which means, well, it's operating in the real world, right? It's not actual in the sense of being material and inexplicable, but like it's creating organized patterns. What else is reality? So maybe stories have more impact than we think. Maybe they play a role that we're not quite getting because we're too small to see it, right? Except insofar as we participated in it and sometimes pantomime it to get something from it, which is very much what we do with archetypes. Sometimes I think that. Sometimes I think, you know, so the answer is I try to remain radically open because I don't know. And to, to pretend that I did know in some final sense, and I'll tell you this, a game I like to play, it's a strange perverse game, but I like to get arch rationalists drunk. And when they're drunk enough <laughs> to ask them the weirdest thing that ever happened to them. And what you get, you get some funny confessions. You'll get people talking about things that they would never ever talk about. And then you're like, so what's your explanation? And they're like, I don't have one. And it's like, so what did you do about that? And they're like, nothing. I stuck it in a drawer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's wonderful because I'm a mystic and a provocateur. So, but, but you know, so the world is weird. And so the metaphysics of it, the unus mundus, it seems like mind and matter must be connected. And it seems like sometimes when you get on the road of the quest that you get nudged that Mercurius winks at you across mm. the across the river, and suddenly you're like, "Wait, how how does that work?" And it violates your sense of what the rules are, your very limited, sketchy primate sense of what reality is, right? <laughs> Hastily constructed in a three pound ball of meat in your head, and so you get these winks where the universe seems right. That's what it seems like, and who knows? Is that an internally constructed reality? Is it an issue of construal? Is it some part of you that acts in a, you know, uh, helps you appropriate your own self-development and guides transcendence? Who knows, right? Jung had ideas, I have ideas. This is not a settled question. But it does sometimes seem like that is sort of how it is. And sometimes when you're in these mystical states, and psychedelic states are legitimate mystical states, but there are lots of ways to get into altered states, you have glimpses, right? You have glimpses of something that is not, it's just not where you normally live. I get the sense that you can't really stay there, right? And that's, that's kind of the, that's the typical trip. But you get glimpses and you're like, oh, right. And the striking thing about it in my experience is how there's always a sense of familiarity. It's not shock. You know, you don't get it and you're like, oh my God, right? You get it and you're like, oh, right, I remember this. And in a way, I mean, mm. I don't know. If mind and matter are continuous, like then this is, we're the thing the universe is doing. I mean, this is sort of like elementary pothead Alan Watts stuff in a way, yeah. right? But it's like, we're the universe looking at itself, folks. And like, mm. that's just really true. That's not, that's not dumb sophistry. It's just simple. And so, well, what does that mean though? Okay, so the Philosopher's Stone. Mm. And then we'll close out. The answer is, I'm going to tease you on that because I'm releasing a whole series on this. <laughs> okay. Well, you know so, what? It's, it's, I, I, I look forward to your series. The, 
sense I'm getting that accords with, you know, the development of my own um, thinking and as a student of John's and as a student of um, Whitehead's and Bergson's, uh, Jung's, notably in the modern world, Forrest Landry, uh, quite mm-hmm. a remarkable philosopher. This, um, the importance of relationship, um, the, that the, the orientation of, of worship, if we were to have worship, would, and, and transjectivity, of course, just to speak to transjectivity, that the patterns of relationship themselves, the tending to the gentle, courageous, and um, caring, committed stance toward the development of relationships that seek to, you know what, I can't put it, my, my friend had a DMT trip once and yeah. uh, he came back with a particular image that stuck with me. And that's a conversation I would love to have with you, by the way, because we can get some launch pads through this, but um, to be handled with care, you know, and um, responsibility. But uh, the image was of a um, group of friends holding hands uh, in a circle and above them was this sort of impending void, you know, but something so beautiful about that camaraderie and being together that there's something about the sacredness of relationship and orientation in relationship, which is the something as fluid as that, something that requires our participation in it as that does, that an, an ethics and a high art of um, realization to be realized through that, that that is the appropriate direction of worship and that we mistake the fixed thing for that to be worshipped and so i'm not so much and of course the philosopher's stone is a metaphor and i i very much await your um your thoughts and i I look forward to them Um, you're getting sort of the advanced uh you're getting the advanced pitch i so i released a four-hour alchemy video yes and then it was like oh my god it's four hours and realized i had to put out part two and when I attempted to do that, it began to undergo combinatorial explosion on me. Mm. And that rapidly led me into like, okay, I'm not going to do this justice if I just try to cram another four hours. What I need to do is structure it out. So you, you got the early scoop here. Relatively forthcoming, I will be releasing a multi-part series on these sorts of subjects, um, which is uh, titled Opus, after the alchemical opus. So hopefully that will be dropping soon and I'll be dropping some teasers and stuff, but yeah, people are interested in this material. They can certainly check that out on my YouTube channel thing. All right. Well, um, Anderson, thank you for this uh, wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you. Let's do it again. If you've ever been in the deep desert, I imagine you have, or because you really, there's a giant desert right in the middle of your continent. (laughs) You should get in there.